You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning, everybody. How are you doing? Pretty good. That's good to hear. I hope you are having a good weekend. I hope this morning is a good morning for you. I hope you've had a great weekend and your experience this morning adds to that great weekend feeling. You know what? Maybe that's not you. Maybe you've had a tough weekend. Maybe you've had a disappointing weekend. Maybe lots of expectations haven't been met. Maybe you haven't slept very much, all that kind of stuff. You know what? I hope and pray that still today would be an encouragement to you. Because our hope and prayer is that church is a place for everybody, from every background, every walk of life, and every feeling. So I hope that today God would meet you by his spirit in this place this morning. Hey, Ali, thank you so much for giving... Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for giving us that update. Hey, isn't it good to know how our brothers and sisters are going in drought-affected Australia? We are pretty insulated in the city here. So my wife and I are looking forward to sending a, a child to one of those camps. I myself became a Christian on a crusader camp at about 15 years of age. And I know it's a similar story to Ali. So when Ali told me, I was just super excited to be sending at least one of those kids on a camp. So I just encourage you guys to think about doing that and being generous in that way. Well, good morning. As Ali said, we are well into our series called Life Together, taking time to ask the questions, what is Harborside on about? What do we really care about? What do we give our time to? What do we prioritise? What's important to us as a church? What do we give time to? Already, we've looked at the foundational value of prayer. We ain't going anywhere without prayer. We've talked about being generous a generous church. What does it mean to be a church that is known for its generosity, that has generosity that raises eyebrows? And so we've been talking about this Beyond Fund. I know we're talking a bit about what you can do with your money today. That's okay. You're mature adults. You can figure out what to do with your money. And we want to let you know again about the Beyond Fund. We want to draw your attention to that. Giving to the great work of Baptist World Aid and Open Doors. Hey, we're going to be closing off this appeal in a couple of weeks. We want to let our partner organisations know what kind of money they've got to deal with before Christmas. And so thank you if you've already given. The the numbers are are encouraging. But hey, if you haven't given yet, I want to encourage you to think about giving to the great work of our partners with the least of these in Nepal and our brothers and sisters persecuted for their faith all around the world. So that's the Beyond Fund. Check that out if you haven't done so yet. So we spent time on... What does it mean to be a praying church? What does it mean to be a generous church? Last week we looked at what does it mean to be a church that serves? A church that gathers together in a team and says, hey, it's not about just those people on the front. It's about all of us gathering together because we are what? The body of Christ. And God has uniquely gifted every single one of us for the glory of God to build something here, to be a witness in this place. And if you fill in a serve card last week, thank you, and we will definitely be in touch. Now, as Ali mentioned before, you might have noticed, we spend a good amount of time at Harborside on the Bible. Every week, someone comes up and reads a passage from the Bible, and then someone come up, comes up and talks about it, sometimes for a very long time. Talks about it, you could call that a talk, a sermon, a message. Often it's me. We get guest preachers in as well. We spend a lot of time on that. Why do we do that? We, spend, we encourage people to join small groups throughout the week. Why? To care for each other, pray for each other build community, and also open the Bible and say, what, is it, what does it say? And how, how is it applying to my life? What do I need to do because of this? We also encourage people to read the Bible during the week. 
Why do we do that? Why do we talk so much about the Bible? Why is it so important? I don't know. I wonder if you've seen this movie. Anyone seen it here called Hidden Figures? Yeah, it's a great movie. I saw it for the second time recently. I love watching great movies again and again. It always frustrates my wife. Haven't you seen it? Yeah, but I want to see it again. I like it. It's fantastic. It follows the three brilliant African-American women in the 1960s working at NASA. Now, can you just imagine the kind of stuff they had to deal with, sexism, racism of that time, to get their jobs and to kind of keep their jobs, crazy things they had to deal with. They're truly brilliant women, and recently, actually, they've been honoured for their work at NASA, which is very encouraging. Now, towards the end of the movie, there's this pivotal scene. That the main character, Catherine Hogan, she's African-American, brilliant mathematician. She's dealing with an all-male, all-white team, right? You can't imagine how full-on that would have been for her. And they're all trying to work out this problem. The problem is they've sent an astronaut, the first American astronaut, into space to orbit the Earth, right? And they're struggling to bring him home. You would have hoped they would have figured that out before they shot him up there, but apparently not. They're trying to figure out how to get him home. The the math equations and principles, they're calculating because when he comes back into the atmosphere, where's he going to land? Is it going to be the Pacific Ocean or the Indian Ocean? That's a big difference. They want to be at the place, you know, when he he lands, right? But the maths to figure out this is is huge. And they are working their butts off trying trying to come up with new mathematical equations and principles, trying to figure out how are we going to do this? Now, the leader of the team, Kevin Costner, plays the role. During this pivotal scene, he kind of throws down his glasses and the paper. He goes, it's not working. We're, just, we're not getting anywhere with this problem. Maybe it's not new math at all. Maybe it's not new math we're looking for. And then Catherine Hogan, the, uh, the main character, has this revelation. She has this revelation. And she, she says, oh. She looks at all the numbers and she thinks about it. She goes, Euler's method. It's Euler's method. Now, don't ask me what that is. I'm not a mathematician. I don't really know. But Euler's method. Now, one of the characters in the movie who's been quite mean to her, over the, she's, he's quite derisive. He says, Euler's method, no, nah, it's not going to work. That's ancient. But she does some quick calculations and, and she figures it out and, and she says, no, 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 it's going to be it. It's what we've been searching for all along. This is going to work. They'd spent all this time, all this money, all this energy trying to come up with new mathematical equations and principles. But actually, their answer was there all along, hundreds of years old. They just needed to dust it off and look at it for their guidance. The answer was always there. What if we were the same? We as a culture, as a society, so many of us are searching for answers by looking forward in progressivism. You're just over the crest of the next hill. That's where we're going to find our answers. If just... If just the world could come together, if we could just waste, you know, stop wasting time fighting, if we could just come together, keep working, then we discover the answers for the human heart. Then we'll be able to solve the problems of the ache of the human heart. But what if instead of just looking ahead, hoping that day might come, we look back? What if we didn't have to invent something new, but it was here all along for us to see? The prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 6 says this. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. What if the answers we so desperately seek were in front of us in this book? And if so, 
how. So this book can serve us incredibly, significantly. Well, if so, how so? But there's so many things we could say this morning. But I want to just boil it down to three things. I want to say that it can serve us so well by being our truth teller, our compass, and our weapon. Hear God's word, our truth teller, our compass, and our weapon. Let's get going with our first point, our truth teller. We're going to dive into the reading that Ali read so well for us from to Timothy. Truth. It is our truth teller. Let's have a look. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from who you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's the author of this letter, and he's writing this letter to a young mentee, right? someone he's been mentoring, Timothy. He's reminding him, he's saying, reminding him of all the things he's taught him while he spent time with him. And Paul also reminds him of the power and place of Scripture. It's able to make you, what does it say? Wise for salvation. You see, in these pages, we are told the story of, the true story of salvation. How you and I can be redeemed from sin and how Christ won that for us in his death and resurrection. We would not know that if it were not for this book. You see, you can't just figure it out. Even if you try really hard, you're the smartest person in the world, you can't figure that out on your own without reference to the Bible. You can't ask learned people the answer to that without reference to this. You can't just work it out on your own. This is what, what theologians call the difference between general revelation and special revelation. That sounds complicated, but really it's not. General revelation is what has been revealed to all people everywhere in natural creation. Some people call it natural theology. You, you might look at creation. You might be out camping. The dad and kids are camping at the moment, for instance. You might be camping out of Sydney late at night and just take in the stars. And what do you conclude? Wow. If there is a God, he must be immense, right? I reckon a lot of us have had that experience before. God must be huge. To create the sun, moon, stars, he must be immense. You might experience a storm. Gee, we had quite the storm this week, didn't we, in Sydney? Some people, poor people, are still without power. You might experience a storm, look up at the sky, or has anyone been on the sea in a storm? That is a frightful thing. Or seen the sea when it's angry and churned up. You might conclude that, wow, God, if he's there, is powerful. You might go to a zoo or a beautiful botanical garden, which Pip and I did recently, and you might conclude, God, if he's there, he's endlessly creative, endlessly creative. You might study physics, the laws of, that, that govern the universe, and just think, wow, the fine-tuning, God, if he's there, he, he's a God of order. You might uh, witness the birth of a child. We were talking about this with Matt and Jade recently that just had their baby. And you just are floored with this is how every human being comes into the earth. It is just an incredible thing. God, if he's, it's a God of miracles. It seems otherworldly. But really our understanding of God falls short after that. We believe God is a God of love. But if you like that idea, you got it from the Bible. We believe that God is a God of, he's a just God, merciful, forgiving, that he extends forgiving to all who come in repentance through Christ. We'd know nothing of the saving work of Christ if it weren't for his word. And Paul tells us why we can have such great confidence in the Bible. Why can we? Let's have a look at verse 16 from our reading. All scripture 
is God-breathed. And it's useful, profitable, useful, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, what does that mean? It means all Scripture comes from God. It is from him. The same word for breath and spirit, ruach, in the Old Testament. It's God's spirit. It originated in God's mind. It was communicated from God's mouth by his spirit. So this passage says all Scripture is useful, profitable, because it is from God. He is the source. Therefore, it is good for us and will build us up. That's what makes it useful. I don't know about you guys. I, um, <clears throat> I've been getting into audibles recently. Anyone do that? The audibles? Yeah. I like to read, but having three young kids and busy life, which is most of us, it's tough to find time to sit down with a good book, although I do enjoy doing that sometimes. I remember when I was... Uh, young and struggling to read. I thought it was boring. Mum was trying to encourage me. Say, I was curious by nature. And she said, Dave, every book that you read, no matter fiction, non-fiction, you always learn something. Right? You always learn one thing. And I found that to be really true. No matter what book it is, you always learn something about culture, about history, about geography. I was chatting with someone, I think Dinesh, who works at Macquarie about economics, and I was just astounded by how little I know. So I read a book on the history of economics. Don't ask me much about it, because I didn't, I don't know if I retained much but I remembered a couple of things. I learned something. You always learn something. There are lots of good books out there, so much to learn. But God's word stands alone. Why? Because it can build us up, because it alone is the very words of God. Now, this passage says it's useful in two ways, useful, profitable in two ways. What's that? Well, as I've already mentioned, it teaches us how one is saved. It contains the story of salvation. It closes the gap between God and us. Now go back again to that camping trip, right? Looking at the stars. Wow, God must be immense. But where do you go from there? Sometimes it can just confirm you into God is huge and big and distant. I am human and, and finite and very small. How do we close that gap? The Bible teaches us the way. It is the handbook to salvation. Without the Bible, we are just stuck in that place. Now, here's the thing. I reckon some of us here, lots of people around, some of us here, may have been burdened by the way we read the Bible. We might be burdened by it. We might think, oh, there's a lot of rules in here. There's a lot of obligation in this book. It seems like there's a lot to do. And when I read it, I just feel the weight of that. What can I say? Maybe you're reading the Bible wrong. Because we have to get one thing fundamentally clear when we read God's word, and it's this. You might take a bit of offense at it. That's okay. It's not about you. This book is not about you. Is it relevant to you? 100%. But it's not about you. It's not about what you have to do. It's about God and what he has done. There is a major difference. See, it's right that you feel the weight of these things in here and you think, I cannot do it. Because the message, of the message of the Bible is, yes, you cannot do it, but there is one who did it, Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. And he died the death that you and I deserve. So we're going to get that one thing clear. It's not about what we have to do. It's what God has done. We don't have to earn our way to God. It's all about what God has done. Okay, 
We've established that without God's word, we'd know something about him, but nothing of Jesus and the story of redemption, the story of grace. What else does God's word do? Again, there's so much we could say here, but what else? It is our truth teller and it is also our compass. Now, what do I mean by that? It is our compass. It gives us direction and shows us our true north. Psalm 119, the long psalm, but it's, you want to know the depths of how great God's word is, I just encourage you to read that over time. That'll build your confidence and your faith in God's word. Psalm 119, verse 105 says this, it might be familiar to you, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path on my path. I don't think I have to convince anyone here that there are so many competing voices out there, aren't there? vying for our attention. It's a noisy world, isn't it? It is a noisy world. Where do we look for daily direction? You see, this is a big claim of itself, the Bible, isn't it? That God's word illuminates our lives, makes the path we're working on visible, discernible, and now therefore walkable. What are we going to give our ear to? Whose attention? Who gets our attention? See, this is a profound question, I think, for us individually and as a church. Who do we listen to? Is it the opinion of friends, family, sections of the media, influencers? Is it just whoever speaks the loudest? I don't know if you watch Q&A sometimes. I can barely watch it anymore. People talking over themselves. It's whoever is the loudest wins. I came across this cartoon, which is kind of funny but true. This is the facts don't matter game. I'm sorry, Jeannie, your answer was correct, but Kevin shouted his incorrect answer over yours, so he gets the points. Does life and social commentary kind of feel like that sometimes? Whoever's loudest gets the points. You see, if we don't individually, and I believe as a church, as we're talking about this morning, why do we spend so much time on God's word? If we don't together submit to something objective, something greater than ourselves, then it is just whoever is the loudest, whoever's got the mic, whoever is the most influential, unless we submit to something objective and something greater to ourselves. Okay, God's word not only leads us in the right direction, but it is the path to true life. Psalm 1 says this. It's a bit small, I'll read it for you. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his Lord day and night. What are they like? Well, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose life does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Now in verse 2, the law here, it doesn't just mean the Ten Commandments, but it's words used for, for all the words of God all the things that he says. And that person who meditates, contemplates, soaks themselves in the very word of God, what are they like? Beautiful picture. They're like a fruitful, prospering tree. That's life-giving. Why? Because the tree is planted right near a source of water that never dries up. And off the back of hearing from Ali, from our dry and burning country, that's a pretty amazing picture, isn't it? A flourishing tree full of life. Some of you know I, uh, 
I run the park run. It's a 5K run on Saturday mornings. Some of you will know that because I've used it at least twice in other sermon illustrations. And I'm, I'm just stretching out this, this current thing in my life, so just excuse me. Now, I usually run it with my nine-year-old son, Josh. But he couldn't make it yesterday. Soft. He couldn't make it. And so, so it was harder because there's probably another sermon illustration here because I didn't have someone next to me. Come on, Dad, we encourage each other. But also, I didn't have an excuse to rest. I mean, it's my nine-year-old son. Are you okay, buddy? Yeah, let's, let's take a break. Whew. Let's walk for a little while. I didn't have that, so it was much harder. Goodness me. Afterwards, after the race, I was catching my breath. It took me a while. And um, just chatting to someone who was very fit. The picture of running fitness, like not an ounce of fat on them. They had all the, you know, sort of tags or the marathons they'd done, all that kind of stuff. And we got chatting, right? And he mentioned that he'd run several marathons. And I just threw this statement out there. Don't ask me why. I'm trying to make conversation. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to run a marathon one day. I do not. <laughs> I, there is really just maybe this much. I'd, is that a lie? Ah, oh, maybe. Just making conversation. Yeah, that sounds cool. He was on it straight away. Well, pretty quick. Do you have a plan? Um, well, <clears throat> here's the thing. Um, I, I, are you running incrementally greater distances every day? Oh, well, here's the thing. No, I just... Uh, are you watching what you eat? And I, well, I was hiding the croissant snack I had. Um, well, so, no. <laughs> are you hitting the gym to get extra strength? You know, are you accountable to someone? I just tr- really tried to change the subject as quickly as humanly possible. That was full on. But he was right wasn't he? He's right. If that's what you want to do, you don't just wake up one morning with no prep and go, I'm going to run a marathon. You'll die. You've got to have a plan. You want to grow in fitness, you've got to have a plan. It's no different in our spiritual lives. Why should we think it is? Cultivating growth, spiritual growth, is at least partly about discipline and habits. Can I just be honest with you? That statement, right? What is it? Cultivating growth is at least partly about discipline and habits. There is just a part of me that reacts to that statement because nature or nurture, I don't know, something in me just rejects that idea of discipline and habits. It just does. I'm not a rule keeper. You know, I'm a rule breaker, which is pretty bad news for your pastor. But that's kind of, that's what I'm prone to be. I think all of us are sort of either, you know, rule keepers or rule breakers. We don't necessarily are those things, but we're drawn to one more over the other than I think. Now, I just, I love freedom. You know, I love, and, and it's true, the grace of Jesus Christ does equal true freedom. Absolutely. But the truth is, if we want to run in the path of grace, we must train ourselves for that race and mold ourselves around its truths. It's not how we're saved. Is it how we grow? Never underestimate what Spending regular time in the streams of living water can do for you. Never underestimate it. You see, some of us, if anything like me, we just we want to have massive transformational change instantly. I think often growing in Christ is incremental change over time. Never underestimate waking up in the morning, spending time reading a small passage of Scripture, praying, God, help me understand this. Help me apply it to my life. Praying, listening to a worship song or two, reorienting our thinking. Who am I? I'm a child of God. As I live this day today, give me opportunities to share my faith, to be a light in this world. You do that for a number of weeks, you look back and see how far you've come. 
Never underestimate the power of incremental change. Okay, so the Word of God is our compass leading us to life. But sometimes, or often in my case, in order to receive the life it brings, we need to undergo some surgery. Hebrews 4.12 says this, I love it. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the human heart. See, the Bible is no ordinary book. And it's not the only way, but I think often the way that God speaks to us and in partnership with the Holy Spirit changes us brings transformation to our lives. And sometimes that change is painful because surgery certainly can be. A good friend of mine, a long time ago now, maybe 25 years or even more, he's a bit older than me, let's just call it even 30 years, was going down the coast on a, on a trip with friends just out of uni. And they were going to remote coastal New South Wales, like very, very remote so it was a family friend's shack, really out of, the, out of the way. And one evening they went out to collect firewood. And my friend just had this idea, as many young guys do at the beginning of these stories, a pretty dumb idea. They were smashing up firewood using an axe and that kind of thing. He thought, I'm not going to use an axe, I'm going to use a massive log. And so he got a log and he was trying to break this bit of firewood. He stood on the bit of firewood and he brought it above his head. Now you can see my sweaty armpits. And he brought it above his head. And he threw it down as hard as he could and instantly it bounced back and hit him in the face and almost completely severed his nose from his face. He's knocked out and on the floor and his friends picked him up with blood absolutely everywhere. None of them knew what to do. This guy turned into a doctor 20 years later, but right now he was not a doctor. And they ran back to the shack. They were trying to figure out what to do. That was so remote. They thought, let's just see if the person next door's home. So they're trying to you know, prop this guy up blood everywhere. They go to the guy's home next door and this old lady opens the door, and, and the, the old couple are there. And the older gentleman that lived in this house was a retired doctor, as luck would have it. So he sits him down, he washes the wound, and uh, my friend's in quite a lot of pain. But he says to him, mate, son, he said, he said it to his son, there are no hospitals anywhere near here, and that wound has to be closed. That's all he said. He goes into the next room, and he brings out his old black doctor's bag, you know. <laughs> opens it up, starts bringing things out. Now, my friend's in quite a lot of pain, but he's putting two and two together. <laughs> he's just thinking, no hospital anywhere near here. I used to like what my nose looked like. And he's just, he's just thinking, he's watching him sort of thread the needle, and it's dawning on him, he intends to operate on me now. And he just says, um, do you have any aesthetic? And the old gentleman, just with shaking hands as he's you know, threading the needle, just shakes his head and he says, son, if you want your nose back on your face, this will, def this will definitely sting a little. It sure did. They had to hold him down and as he sewed his nose back on his face. Is that too gruesome for 11 o'clock in the morning? I just, maybe it is. At least you're awake now. So that, there it is. Sometimes surgery is painful. You see, when I read something like this, when I read something like James 1 verse 9, 
My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. When I read this, I'm convicted. God's word is doing its thing. It is piercing, going beneath my pride and hitting me where it hurts. Because I'm reminded of all the times I've spoken over people. I'm reminded all the times I've just been too busy to listen to the kids regale me of all the details of their school day. Times when I've become angry just over stupid, pathetic things. You see, the word of God convicts me. But there's a big difference between conviction and condemnation. The word of God convicts me, but I'm not condemned. The word of God convicts me through the Spirit. Yes, that conviction is an assault on my pride, but then it leads me to repentance, and I look to Christ for forgiveness. You see, for those who follow Christ, the Holy Spirit uses God's word to convict us, which does lead to repentance, in order to seek forgiveness from God through Christ. Okay, let's finish with our final point. We've looked at God's word is our truth teller. It is our compass leading to life can hurt, but life that is truly life can hurt sometimes. And finally, it is our weapon. What do I mean by that? Well, actually, Liana talked about it before, before the kids went out. Ephesians fix, sorry, Ephesians fix. Ephesians chapter 6 encourages Christians not to be unaware of the trials life throws at us. Life is tough, eh? It's not a cruise ship. It's hard, and people get taken out all the time. We've got to equip ourselves for the battle. But it's not a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. So we need to arm ourselves appropriately. Ephesians 6 talks about putting on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, taking up the shield of faith to distinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, and taking up the sword of spirit, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Friends, in this life, we've got one offensive weapon, and it is the word of God. When Jesus entered the wilderness right before his public ministry and fasted for 40 days, he was tempted by Satan. Satan came at him three times with serious temptations, and what did Jesus do? He met the evil one and his lies with the truth of Scripture, and the evil one couldn't touch him. Friends, how are we going to run this race with perseverance? How are we going to drown out the competing voices in our culture that are so loud? How are we going to defeat the temptations of the evil one and win the battle of our minds? We take up the sword of the Spirit and we swing it hard. We meet our vices with our verses. We have our vice verses. God's word is powerful to equip us in our daily life and our struggles. To those who are feeling overworked, overburdened, and stressed out with life, Jesus says this, remember it, come to me, all who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. To the person believing the lie that the sin they've committed is just unforgivable. Satan loves that lie, loves to rub that in. Real Christians don't do what you just did. The Bible says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the truth. Fill your head with it. 
to the person struggling to feel like they're making any progress in this Christian life, we need to be reminded of who we really are. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. When our bodies are giving way, when they're failing us, when they're letting us down, the truth of the word of God says this, though outwardly we are wasting away, it's real, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. To the person just struggling to trust God, God, if this were my journey, I would have written it differently. I don't understand the path you've got me on. Psalm 32 says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. You can trust me. To the person feeling alone, no family, little family, left out in the cold by friends, 1 John 3 says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. We can have confidence in God's word because it reveals the truth to us about who God is and what he's done. It guides our life. It leads us into the way of life. And it is our greatest weapon in the fight for our true identity. Amen to that.